morning. It's such a blessing to be here. Um, as Pastor Joe mentioned, uh, he's an old friend. And I remember when he first started coming to Calvary. And I remember that day in my office. And I really understood what he was saying because, you know, you see that a lot. And what you don't realize is that every Christian is in ministry. Um, not always full-time, but we're all in ministry. We all have the ministry of reconciliation where we are reconciling the world to, G uh, the, to God through Jesus Christ as we are ambassadors for Christ and uh, leading people as we are uh, witnesses for Him in the world. And we are, we're all called to serve the Lord, right? In some way. We're all part of the body. And the body works together for the, for the edification of the whole. So we're all called to ministry well, um, just real quick, I want to let you know that we've got some newsletters here uh, on our ministry. If you're interested, you're curious, I would love to ask you to pray for us especially. And you can pick them up on the table outside here where there's a deflated beach ball. I'm not sure what that was for, but there's a beach ball out there. We're by the beach ball. So you can pick up a, a newsletter and just see what, you know, what's happening and how you can pray for us. Uh, that's the greatest thing you can do for us is just keep us in prayer as you remember us. Uh, it's hard to, to keep us in mind when we're away for two years at a time, but we do hope to be able to get back here, uh, maybe and visit with you again in, in two years' time when we get back for our next furlough. So as uh, Pastor Joe said, we have a Calvary Chapel Fellowship in Treviso, Italy. It's the northeast section of Italy, close to Venice, about one hour north of Venice, and, or I'm sorry, actually 30 minutes north of Venice. And we started Sunday services five years ago. We're blessed to see what the Lord is doing. He's uh, brought us to a place of establishing a good foundation, some leadership in the church. And uh, we're just in a new phase now where up until recently there were many English speakers. And uh, that's kind of changed with many of them having had to go back to the United States or back to the United Kingdom. And so while we are a mixed group of many nationalities, probably about 10 or so, in different language groups, we narrow it down to two, and our services are bilingual. We have English and we have Italian uh, with a, a live translation, which makes it very interesting. It's a, new, it's a, a different dynamic to what you would uh, be used to. But now with most of the English speakers leaving, most of the transient people leaving uh, because their job contracts have finished or they've uh, finished their service time with the military, we're looking forward to seeing what God will do with the people who are stationary, just to see how he might want to raise them up into service. So pray for us in that, and um, we'll keep you updated the best we can, all right? So if you have a Bible, why don't we turn together to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans, chapter 8. You'll find Romans just past the Gospels and the book of Acts. Romans 8. Romans 8 has been called a chapter of new beginnings. And as you read through Romans, you can see why that would be. Paul, up until this point, has been really making a case for the need of salvation in Jesus Christ. He's told us about the depravity of man, the sinful nature of man. And we come to learn that righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, is imparted to those who trust him by faith. That, that we are not Christians, we are not saved by being born into a Christian family. We are not relieved of the penalty of sin because 
we live in a Christian community or a so-called Christian nation. We're not trusting in tradition. We're trusting only in Jesus, and that is by faith. And this is what the prophet Habakkuk said, the just shall live by faith. And so we come to God on the basis of faith and no other thing. We don't come to him based upon the law. The law condemns, but Jesus saves. The law points out our sin and that we need salvation. And so after we've come to Christ then and we are justified before God, we are made right before him, then there's a process that begins. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And of course, that is a process. True, it it, it happens immediately. We are set apart for God when we surrender our lives to him. We say, here I am, take me. I, I, I trust in you, I need you, and I want to give my life to you. But then there's a process that takes place because we don't all become godly overnight. That would be wonderful, but it doesn't happen. And so there's a process where we are being shaped into the image of Christ, to be more like him through the the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus prayed for that. Remember in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, sanctify them, them being all of us, all those who have trusted in Jesus as the Messiah. Sanctify them in the truth. And then he said, your what? Word is truth. And so the very thing we're doing today is part of that sanctification process as we come and learn more about what God has to say regarding himself, regarding us. And then we discover, wow, we've got a lot to grow. But how do we do that? Well, then as we learn how far we are yet from being Christ-like, the good news is that we live a life in the power of the Holy Spirit and not in our own strength. So we're justified and we're sanctified, but we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. In fact, this was so important that Jesus told the disciples. First, you know, he gave the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I have taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? uh, Matthew chapter 28. But then, right after that, in Acts chapter 1, he says, listen, Don't leave Jerusalem until something happens. You remember what that was? Until the promise of the Father, until the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you receive power. And what was that power for? It doesn't say you receive power to raise the dead, although, of course, they had that. He doesn't say you'll have power to heal the sick, although, of course, they had that. He said you will receive power and you will be something. He says, you will be my witnesses in the world. But it was impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, we can't live this life in our own strength. And that's good news because if you're tired of trying to be a Christian, then you know what you need to do. You need to lean on the Holy Spirit. And I remember so many years trying to change myself, thinking, you know, if I just want it bad enough, I can, I can be different. And that was so wrong. So then there's the life lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. And these are, the, these are the things that we find, that's the concise panoramic view of the book of Romans. 
and we could say it summarizes the Christian life. And all of this is wonderful news, right? It's, it's wonderful to know that we're saved by faith, that becoming Christ-like is the work of the Holy Spirit as we comply with him, and that the life lived is a life in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what is this all leading to? What is the purpose of all this? Why has God saved us? What, what is he going to do with us? I mean, we're all wondering, you know, what is God's will for me? What's down the road? We can sometimes become paralyzed as we think about that, wondering, you know, oh, I'm trying to figure it out. Well, the, the good news for us is that in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we find out what is God's ultimate purpose for us. Look at what he says in verse 28, and this is one of those probably most famous most commonly quoted verses in the Bible that we love to remember, a promise of God. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the first thing Paul says to us is that we know these things. We know that for those who love God, all things work together, right? So there's a certainty about something. There's a certainty about what is happening in our lives. And depending on the Bible you have, the translation you have, it may say that God works all things together for good. And of course, that's the thought. Some manuscripts have that. Uh, I'm reading in the ESV this morning, and it doesn't say that, but of course, that's the idea. It's not something like a karma where, you know, if you do good to others, good will happen to you. It's not a uh, you know, the destiny of the stars, that good things will happen in our life. It's not an invisible force mysteriously turning things out for good. It's, it's God at work in our lives, both in the big things and in the small things. And this is important for us to realize. This is not just a positive outlook on life, but that God is intimately involved. And this, the purpose of this, is for us to see things differently, no matter where we are, what we're dealing with, we would see it differently. And Paul, as an apostle, was qualified to say this. You know, you might think, well, gee, it was easy for Paul to say that he was an apostle, and maybe even his readers would have thought that for a moment. It's easy for you to say that all things work together, Paul. Look at the power of God in your life. But see, Paul was qualified to say this without any recoil from his listeners for two reasons. He was qualified theologically because this is him writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word to us this morning, not the Apostle Paul. Paul was the pen. He was the author. But moving him was, was God himself. And so this is God's word to you and to me that we would know all things are working together for good. But Paul was also qualified to say this experientially. Paul was not somebody who had an easy life. Paul was in shipwreck. He was in stoning. He had been close to death several times. He lived in a hungry state very often. He was in prison, not because he had done wrong. He was in prison for serving the Lord. Think about that. And so whether Paul was suffering or whether he was in blessing, he is saying, because by the way, he said, I have learned to be content both with abundance and with lack, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
Notice the words learned. Paul learned that by experience. So he's saying whether we're blessed or burdened, whether we're beaten or we're hungry, whether we are full or rejected by family, by the world, by our co-laborers at our job, he's like, he says God is working in all of this. God is saying, look, don't despair. I'm at work. It's not some things. It's all things. And Paul doesn't say, we hope that all things work together for good. We think, we believe it. He says, we know it. We know. And this is an all-comprehensive thing. It's not by random chance. God is working in all things. And this truth should really affect how we view life in a magnificent way. It should really change our view. See, if God is working, well, then that means that he is, he is working towards something. He's not just randomly doing things here and there. He's not sanding over here and then just painting over here and moving the furniture around just for change. He's doing something specific. He has an end goal, an end product in sight. Remember six days God worked and the seventh he rested? In the creation account, what did he do? There were various stages of creation each one bringing gradual order to a greater glory until finally when it was done, he said, it is good. And there was a finished product. Creation was complete. But each time as he began to create, he, there was a sanctifying process that was taking place, right? What is sanctification but separation? Setting things apart. He began to separate the upper firmament from the lower firmament. The waters from the land, gathering the waters into one place. He began to sanctify, separating the light from the darkness, each stage saying it is good until finally the crown of creation, mankind, finished the process and he rested. See, it wasn't all overnight. Now, that account for us in Genesis is a beautiful parallel to the Christian life, isn't it? Before Christ, our lives were much like the world before God began to shape it. We read in Genesis 1 that the earth was void. It was without shape, without form. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep, and then it was God's hand working in creation to begin, that began to shape it and give it purpose, give it direction, give it order, and bring about change, resulting in a beautiful and glorious final product. And so was our lives like that. Before Christ, our lives were dark and empty and void and really without purpose until God stepped in. And when God spoke into our lives, there was light. He said, let there be light, right? And the, the light of God shined in our hearts. We believed the gospel and something happened, something changed and sanctification began so that he began to separate things in our life, making change, moving things around for a different product that he wanted to produce. And now we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that he who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old is past, all things are made new. What a glorious truth that is. And so now that there's a new creation, even though it's not complete, we have another promise in Philippians 1.6. Do you remember that? Paul said, I am confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you shall 
completed until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we can rest in that. And now we can know that everything that is happening in our life is not by random chance. It's not because the world is against us, although that is true. It is because God is working in our lives. And what that work is for is good. God isn't playing games with us. He's not moving pieces around the chessboard and stepping back and laughing and saying, let's see you get out of that one. He's got a purpose. And he says, it is good. Now, we look at this verse, and typically, we look at it as a promise, and, and you know, we, we think this refers to the blessings that will follow the difficulties. You know, maybe we have uh, some issues. We lost our job, and, and we're looking for a job, and it's been a while that we're unemployed, and we, you know, we say, well, you know, all things work together for good. It's because God's got a better one for me. Or when we're stuck in traffic, one of my least favorite things, brake lights all around me. You know, I, I actually wrote a song one day driving to Long Island stuck on the Verrazano Bridge. I wrote a song about it. I'm not going to sing it for you, but just to say, that's how meaningful it is to me. We're stuck in traffic and we say, well, it's because God is protecting us from an accident down the road. That's, that's why I'm stuck in traffic. And, you know, we, we think these things. Or, you know, we're, we're trying to sell our house or we're trying to get a house and we're not getting the loan. And, we, you know, God is protecting us from something. Well, though God may, in fact, be doing that, this is not the point of this verse. And it's important we realize that because if we don't, we will hold God to a promise he has never made. And when God doesn't perform according to what we think is good, we're disappointed. And we say, Lord, you're not being faithful. We're disillusioned. The truth is, in our unemployment state, God may not have another job for us for a long time. Maybe he doesn't even have a better job. Maybe it's going to be a worse job with more hours and less pay. I'm serious. That's what my brother is experiencing right now. Maybe the reason for that is because he wants to teach us to live by faith. Maybe we had become too comfortable. And in that comfort, there was complacency and we became distant from him. And he's removing that material security to bring us back to him. God has a way of getting our attention, doesn't he? Maybe the slow driver down, you know, in front of me is, is not because God's protecting me from an accident. Maybe it's because he's teaching me patience, something that I don't have by nature, something that we can't learn from a textbook. We know what the definition is, but do we have it because we simply know what it is? Of course not. It's not like you learn mathematics and now you've got it. Two plus two is four. Well, I know what patience is, but I don't have it. And so God needs to, to teach me this. It's something that we have to exercise in our flesh as we subdue the impatient carnal nature. And you know, one of the hardest places to be patient in the world, I believe, is in the United States of America. Why is that? Why is it so difficult for us to learn to wait? Because we never have to, usually. We're, we're in a society where our flesh is so catered to that if you have to wait, 
The pizza's free, right, Domino's? 30 minutes? So you order the pizza and you're thinking to yourself, I hope the guy gets a flat tire so my pizza's free. Or if you're in a restaurant and you've waited too long for your food, you know, maybe they'll compensate and give you one of the meals free or even the whole dinner free. Because, you know, we shouldn't have to wait. It's just not right. We have faster internet, faster cars, you know, faster toll booths now. What do you call it here? Is it Easy Pass? Easy Pass. I can't remember what we call it in Italy. I think it's, um, uh, what's it called, honey? Telepass, yeah. I don't know what the tele part is about, but telepass. You see, we want what we want and we want it now, but in God's system, he doesn't work according to our time clock. And so when we live in a society and we have a lifestyle that is so catered to our flesh, when it comes to waiting on God, we just can't do it. We we, we don't want to wait on God. It's one of the hardest things for a Christian to do, waiting for a certain answer to prayer, waiting for a certain word of direction. We need to learn to wait on the Lord. And God will allow certain things in our lives to teach us that, to teach us dependency, to teach us patience to produce this product that he calls good in our life. And so what we have to understand is then that the things that happen in our lives that we may consider to be disappointments, even though they are disappointments for us, God is saying somehow they're good. Somehow they're good. And we may not see how that can be right now. But this is the life of faith. This is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Remember, the just shall live by faith. Years ago, when we had, um, well, we had 10 years of infertility in our marriage, we couldn't have children, and it was a difficult thing for us to accept. Uh, many, many months of each year, several years of disappointment, hoping, waiting, And uh, it seemed like in the times when we were lowest and most depressed about not being able to have children. By the way, the doctor said, just adopt because you guys aren't going to, you can't have children. It seemed like in those low moments, everybody was pregnant. All of our friends were pregnant. They were all telling us, oh, we're having a baby. We don't even want a baby. We're having one. Dogs were having puppies, and cats were having kittens, and flowers were blossoming. There was life all around us, but not in our house. And then the challenge came, you know, to rejoice with those who were rejoicing when we were suffering. Challenged us. And then we got a phone call from the office at Calvary Chapel Oldbridge. We had already gone to Italy. We had been there for some time, and And uh, Luis Solis, who you might know, who was the missions pastor at the time there, he said, do you guys want a baby? And I said, brother, if you're messing around, that's not funny. You know we want a baby. And Renata was on the other telephone. Uh, She was listening in. And she began to cry immediately. And I said, where where are you going with this? What are you talking about? He said, well, we've got a woman in the church who's pregnant and it's a complicated situation with Dyphus and their background and so forth. And she wants to give the baby up to a, a Christian family. And she's due in three weeks. Do you want to adopt this baby? 
And what you don't know is that three weeks prior to that, I had prayed and I said, Lord, regarding this whole infertility and the idea of adoption, I said, Lord, if, if, if you want us to adopt, it's going to have to be you because we can't afford it. We're not in a place, we live in Italy and we're, we would like to adopt through the United States system, but how do we do that? We don't have the money for that. We don't have $20,000 for an adoption. I said, so Lord, if, if this is something you, you want, you're going to have to bring it to us. It's going to have to be a miracle. And then the, the telephone call came. And because it was going to be a private adoption, the church was going to help us get to the States to pick up the baby. It would be an affordable thing. And it just seemed, yeah, this is it. This is it. He's really doing it. He's bringing it to us. And uh, within a few days, we had plane tickets. We had lawyers from New York. We had uh, appointments for background checks, fingerprinting, all these crazy. Our life was just in a whirlwind with, within 48 hours. And uh, within a week or two, I, th- I can't remember, we were on a plane going to the States. And the day we arrived, she was uh, delivering the baby. She was in the hospital delivering in labor uh, when I was, we were picked up at the airport. And she just, after that, she just, she, uh, Luis had talked to her and she said, oh, I'm so glad the family from Italy is here. Um, just give me a couple of days, give me a day or two. And uh, then we'll, you know, we'll move forward with everything. And that was the last time we heard from her. She never called us back. She never took any more calls. She went into hiding, basically. And it was the lowest point of our lowest points. And we ended up going back to Italy without a baby. And I'll tell you what. You know, if you talk to Renata or myself about it today, we'll tell you, look, it was the hardest thing we could have ever experienced, we think, up until that point. But now we wouldn't trade it. We didn't like going through it. If you had spoken to me during that time, I would have said, look, I'd rather be doing other things than than waiting around for two weeks in America because an adoption didn't go through. And um, now we wouldn't trade it for the world. And what happened in that time is, you see, the Lord revealed himself to both of us in a powerful way that we had never experienced before. And he couldn't have done it any other way. There are times that we have to experience things in the, in the times when we're alone, we realize we're not really alone. In the times that we're broken and hurting, we find how God mends us and heals us. And Renata will tell you, my wife, that God's peace she had thought she knew became tangible to her. She had spoken about God's peace, but at that point she really knew God's peace. It was in her life. And so we're thankful for that. God used it for good to produce something in us that couldn't have been done any other way. And when we got back to Italy... I wasn't exactly rejoicing. I was having a hard time still. And I remember going up into into my office and praying. And much like the psalmist, I poured out my heart to the Lord. I held nothing back. And I said, Lord, I said, you say in your word that children are a blessing from you. But you won't give us any. Why do you seem to bless the wicked? Why do you give children to those who don't want them? to those who will abort them, those who will abuse them. Why do you seem to bless the wicked? What have we done? Do I have to go sin and rebel so you'll bless me? This was, this was really what I prayed, shouting to the Lord. 
And I went downstairs, slammed the door, and about an hour later, I came back upstairs and I said, Lord, forgive me. I'm so stupid. I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I know that your will is good and perfect, and if this is what you've chosen for us, though I don't understand it and though I don't like it, we will accept it, and we will, we will live by faith, trusting that this is your will for us. And what I did not know is that my wife was pregnant as I was shouting at the Lord. Pretty amazing. He's a miracle baby. He's in the children's ministry down the hall. And uh, then once the floodgates of heaven opened up, then came number two. So now we're like, whoa, slow down, Lord. All those prayers have piled up and downshift a little bit. So you see, it's good. And though we may not see it now, we live by faith. And so there are times when God says no. There are times when God says wait. There are time when, times when God makes us do something. He has to push us a little bit harder to bring us to a place that we will do what he needs for us to do in order that we would be Christ-like. You know, having children is a big lesson in itself. It accelerates that process of dying to yourself, you know, that Jesus talked about. We must die to ourselves. A grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die before it can produce a harvest. We, we find ourselves dying slowly as parents because children bring these things out of us. But as a father, a young father, I'm discovering new things all the time about our father in heaven through my relationship with, with my children. And there are times that I say no to them for things because they're just not ready. You know, there are, now think about this. My, my son was three years old and we were in our bathroom and, uh, you know, he always, as children do, he would always go to something he wasn't supposed to touch. And there was a container, an orange, fluorescent orange container of toxic uh, bathroom cleanser. You wonder why they make it so attractive of, an, of a color for children, you know, if it's so deadly. And he wanted that thing. He wanted that bottle of detergent, and he wanted to take the cap off, and I said no, and his world fell apart. And so I found myself, I sat down on the toilet seat, and I said, son, I thought, I'm going to explain to him why he can't have this. And he's just looking at me, and I'm trying to reason with a three-year-old, telling him, look, one day you can have that detergent, but right now it's not a good idea. You really don't know how to handle it. But when you're older, you can have the detergent and a sponge, and a mop. And you can come in and you can use it to clean the bathroom. But right now, you can't have it. And he would have nothing of that. He just was crying because I was ruining his world. And we laugh at that, but don't we do that with the Lord? You see, there are things that we think we need or things that we think we should have or should do or even should be. And the Lord says, no, you can't handle it. It's not time. Maybe one day down the road, maybe never. But the Lord knows. And we need to be thankful that our Father in heaven knows and he's keeping us from things that we don't need to be involved in. This is his faithfulness. He's doing this for our good. All things work together for good. 
Then there are times when I have to make sure my children have what they don't want, such as nap time. We all know what happens to a child that doesn't have a nap. So I pray for the children's ministry a little bit more today. Hygiene, washing up, taking a shower. My children last night screamed. I thought somebody's going to call the cops because the window was open. Maybe you heard that last night, honey, when they screamed like I was taking their skin off. When I put them in the shower, you know, they didn't want to go in. And when the water hit them, they just let it all out. I thought, well, you need to be washed. It's good. It's a good thing. Well, the Lord does that with us. And then there's the discipline, of course, of God in our life that we think is not good. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews says, we've all experienced that discipline of our earthly fathers who, in their love for us, did the best they could to discipline us. And he says, no discipline for the moment seems good, but we know that it produces fruit, something good. And I find myself face-to-face with that all the time, with, with my kids and having to discipline them, which hurts me, but I know it's for their good, and I do it because I love them. And so the Lord with us, disciplining us. So God is working all things together for good, but what does this good look like? See, if we were to stop there, we might come away and say, well, gee, that's good news. But what does this final product look like? If God is working towards something, he's trying to produce something in my life, what is it? How will I recognize it? Well, let's go back into verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, this is a com- one complete thought with what Paul has said earlier. God working all things together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, this is the good that God is talking about. We see this word predestined and we, you know, we think, whoa, isn't that what the Calvinists talk about, being predestined? But what is, the, what is the context here? What is he talking about? See, we can get lost in this whole idea and debate about predestination and free will of man. But what is it he says? He says, God predetermined that those who are in Christ would be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, The very purpose of God in saving us is to make us like the second Adam, to make us like Jesus. This is what he had purposed and predetermined in the salvation plan which was made before the foundations of the earth. Doesn't mean we're going to become like divinity, like the new age talk, you know, that God in us, but it does mean that we will be conformed, conformed because we are not like him yet. So we have to be made like him, made in similar form or nature or style. That's what it means. And image is an object that is shaped to resemble the form or appearance of the original, like a portrait. So what God is doing is producing the nature, the person, the style of Christ in our life. He's making us like Jesus. And that should both excite us 
and encourage us. See, I don't know about you, but I think it's pretty cool to be like Jesus. My son, a few weeks back, was in um, the hallway at the church in Old Bridge after service, and he was running around like usual because he's got uh, unceasing energy. And uh, he was acting out all of his superhero favorites. He's got probably a good eight, maybe ten of them. And, you know, he doesn't, doesn't just tell you what they do. He shows you how they do. You know, Superman shoots like this. And Iron Man, the thrusters out of the hands. And he's doing his whole act. And then he comes back to the secretary who was sitting out there. And he says, oh, there's one more. And I'm standing there like this. And I go, it's daddy, right? And he goes, oh, Jesus. Jesus is the best superhero. And I was like, all right, I'll accept that. Yeah, it's okay. Jesus is definitely better than daddy. Humbled by my son, of course. But that's his perspective of Jesus, that Jesus is the biggest and the best. See, your perspective of Christ will affect how much you take this verse to heart. Do you want to be like Jesus in your marriage, in your workplace? In the church? See, if we look at the character of Jesus, in fact, let's do that. We'll look at a few different verses before we close this morning. What are some of the things that God wants to produce in us to make us like Christ? We could be here for hours. In fact, Pastor Joe told me I could speak for two hours. So we may actually get through it all. The first I'd like to look at is in Matthew 11. It's the gentleness of Christ. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Just back up a, a few books. Actually, let's, let's begin in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Beautiful promise, right? First is an invitation with a promise. Come to me and I'll, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So here's one of the most beautiful invitations we can find in Scripture. Come to Jesus and we find rest for our souls. But then he says, learn from me. And this is a learning of an apprenticeship. When you think of a yoke, what do you envision? You envision that wooden object, right, that binds typically two oxen together. And it enables them to walk side by side in harmony so that the, the, the farmer can cultivate the land. He can plow and make a new uh, furrow. And the beautiful picture also that Jesus gives us is that the, the yoke is always custom fit to the animal. So it's not something that's going to be tied around our neck and choke us and and constrict us. It's not something that's going to imprison us or limit us. It's something that is going to set us free, give us rest, and enable us to walk with Jesus as he wants to, in the direction that he wants to go. Beautiful promise. But what do we learn as we walk with Jesus? We learn meekness gentleness, 
See, the idea of learning from Jesus is something that happens as we are with him. We don't learn simply from a textbook, although this reveals things to us. We have to walk with Jesus. You have to experience him. And as you are with him, inevitably, in fellowship and communion with the Lord, you will begin to gain Christ-like attributes, compassion and mercy, love, patience, graciousness, humility, meekness, gentleness. See, it's a simple fact of life. You become like those you spend your time with, which is a good thing to remember. I remember my mother always saying that to me. Tell me who you're going out with and I'll tell you what you are. Remember that? You remember hearing that? Living in Italy, you know, inevitably we start to pick up characteristics of the Italians. The Italians always speak with their hands. You want to make an Italian shut up? Handcuff him, Pastor Joe. He can't talk. And they've got, they've got hand signals for everything. This means I'm out of here. This one here is like, who are you kidding? Now, if you lower the hand just a little bit down to here and you do it, it means something crafty is going on here. This one is like, are you out of your mind? And then, of course, the one in the car, you know, when they're driving like lunatics, you know, put your hand up. Is that Tom? You guys know what I'm talking about. I've got, how many Italians are here? All right. You know, you just put your hand up. What? And if you've done something really stupid, it's two hands. You know, what are you doing? You can do a lot with your hands. I remember one time, uh, like, I wasn't even a year of living there, and I was arguing with my wife, having intense fellowship. (laughs) It's hard to believe I would argue with my wife, but it did happen once. And I said something to her, and I was doing this, and she said, don't you use your hands to talk to me. And I said, I'm sorry, I won't do that anymore. We, we, we gain Christ-likeness as we walk with him. And then there is the humility of Christ. Let's turn to John chapter 13. John 13. We don't have time to read the whole account, but here Jesus is washing the the disciples' feet. And there's so much here for us. But we know that this is something of extreme humility. Understanding that the the feet of the body, the bottom of the feet were considered the most, the filthiest part of the body. And, And it was something that, Nobody but the lowest of servants would would wash. And if you had a servant, when you would come home from your walk, from shopping at the market or from the bathhouse, your feet would be dirty. You wore open-toed shoes, sandals, flip-flops. And your feet would have to be washed before you went in. If you were a guest coming to my house, I would make sure that my servant washed your feet. But if I couldn't afford a servant... I would have to wash your feet. And by doing that, it was an admission that I am of low estate. I don't have money. I'm poor. And this is something that Jesus does. He takes the towel upon himself, 
putting aside his garments of the rabbinical uh, garments and taking a towel on himself. And as he washes the disciples' feet, it says that he dried them with the towel that he wore. Very uh, illustrative for us of what Christ does spiritually by taking our filth upon himself, taking our iniquity. Let's read a few verses in the account. It says, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter thinking that because Jesus is the greatest among them, there's no reason for him to be doing this because it should be the lowest among them. Jesus says to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him a second time, you will never wash my feet. Very obvious, he didn't understand. And Jesus said to him, listen, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And I believe there's a twofold message for us here. First, if we are not washed by the blood of Christ, we have no share with him. We can have religion. We can have tradition. We can have a novel name of Christian. But if we are not washed by Jesus, we do not have a share with him. We do not know him. But I believe that Jesus is also saying, listen, Peter, if you don't get this, you are not going to be able to serve in my kingdom. If you don't understand that the greatest will be the least, humbling himself and becoming servant of all, you will not have a share in my ministry. Well, when Peter hears this, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And that is a good response. See, if, if what Peter's saying is, do whatever you have to do, Lord, in order for me to have all of you, to have that share with you. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? It's a good question. Do we understand? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We know a lot of things, but do we do them? That's where the blessing is. You see, Jesus says, I have given you an example, and Jesus always gives the example he doesn't ask us to do things that he hasn't first pioneered for us. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's already gone the way of Calvary. He was the first to take up his cross. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you pick up your cross and follow me. But then jumping down just a little bit to verse 34, we find the love of Christ. And so we move from the humility to the love. And we must remember that we are all called to serve one another in humility, to wash one another's feet. And this, of course, cannot be done without love. And this is why Jesus then leads to verse 34. 
He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you raise the dead, if you heal the sick, if you part the Red Sea, now he says, if you love one another. Isn't that amazing that he would say that? It's not what I would have chosen to let the world know I'm a disciple of Jesus. You know, if I come from a Baptist background many years ago, and still today, doctrine to me is of utmost importance. Doctrinal purity is important. And sometimes we might think, you know, if we could just determine and clarify doctrinal purity, the world would, would know we are followers of Jesus. And maybe from a Pentecostal background, you would think, if we could just see the power of God at work, parting that traffic on the parkway, that would let the world know, I am a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, no, if you can love one another, if you love one another as I have loved you, they'll know that you're with me. That's what he's saying. That's amazing. See, it's not so easily done apart from the power in the life of Christ in us. Moving quickly to finish, there is the cross of Christ in Matthew 16, 24, where Jesus says, he who would follow me must take up his cross and follow and, and uh, walk as I walk. You must lay your life down, surrendering your will and your agenda to that of the Lord. And Jesus gives us that example in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays. He says, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Which shows us that in his human nature, because Jesus was also human while he was God, this is the mystery of godliness. It shows us that he wasn't excited about embracing Calvary, but he did it in obedience. Paul tells us in Philippians, humbling himself in obedience to death, and that death on the cross, the most shameful of all ways to be put to death. Then there is the suffering of Christ. Let's look at that quickly. First Peter chapter two. This is another one of those promises you don't find in the promise box you bought at the Calvary Chapel bookshop. First Peter chapter two, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And of course, this is not a self-inflicted suffering. Living in Italy, there are those who will crawl up and down the steps of St. Peter's Basilica on their knees with, without pants in order to make themselves bleed because they think that in suffering... We are pleasing Christ, but it's not a self-inflicted suffering that God is telling us we are called to. It's a suffering that will happen because the world is at enmity with God and his people. And so if you suffer for Christ, it's a good sign. However, if nobody ever gives you grief for your faith, there might be something wrong. Well, if we were to stop there, it, we would be despairing. Let's finish with 2 Corinthians 3. 
Of course, after suffering, there is always glory. This is the glory of Christ. Beautiful promise. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Did you catch that? We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is the sanctification of the Holy Spirit in our life. As we look at Christ, we see that glorious image. And the work of God is seeking to reproduce that in us. This is the good that God is working towards in all things. Is that good news? That's glorious news. We should be encouraged at that. The image of Christ, that we would be a portrait to the world of Jesus himself. It is both a privilege and a responsibility, but there's nothing better in life. And so the greatest work of God is not what he would do through us in the world, but what he will do and is doing in us. Think about that. Let him work in us first. A creation of the heavens and earth took six days. Yet the work for us and in us goes on for until we are in glory with him. It's a lifetime until we see him face to face. But we can rejoice now in each stage knowing that this is what he's doing. It's not a mystery. The challenge will then be, will we trust him for what he's doing? Will we be able to see that it is good even though we're disappointed? Well, it's time for us to share together in communion as we remember the Lord's death and resurrection for us. But before we, we do that, I'm going to ask the, the guys leading us in worship, Paul and Anthony, to come forward. Before we take part in communion, it's important that we understand a few things. First, are we right with the Lord? Have we discerned his body, both the body which is the church and the body that he gave up on the cross for us, giving us salvation for free, but at no cost, but at a great cost for him? Where are we? Are we okay with everybody in here? Are we okay with one another? Is there division in our life? Is there sin in our life that we've yet to confess to him? or to confess to another brother or sister or spouse. We want to make sure that those things are in place because Jesus said, if you bring your sacrifice to the altar and you discover there that your brother has something against you, he says, leave it and go make peace with him first and then come and offer your sacrifice. We want to make sure that fellowshipping with God is done in transparency with one another. But even more than that, if you've never trusted Jesus to be the one that saves you from your sin, if you've been living religiously with great and noble ambition, but you've never been washed by him to have your sins forgiven by his bloodshed, by faith, putting faith in what he's done for you, then there's really no reason for you to take the bread or the cup this morning because that's only symbolic 
of what he's done, which means you've already received it. We're doing it to remember what he's done because we've, we've already applied that by faith in our life. So if you've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, well, now's a chance for you to do that, especially before communion. And then you can go into communion with great joy as you join with the brothers and sisters here in Christ. And so would you lead us in worship? And if God has been speaking to you, you've been listening to these things and you believe in your heart, you bear witness that they are true, but you can't say that.